0: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
1: I'm not the sort of person who can be bullied. Nobody ever bullied me since I was 13 or 14 years old. Brian Parks was the last person that bullied me. And ask him if you ever meet him just how that ended up. So I will not be bullied or browbeaten or emotionally blackmailed into blackballing anyone Either for what they say on this show, or even more absurdly, what they say on Twitter. Some of you need to get out more. Twitter is not the world. And if it was, Jeremy Corbyn would already be romping home to a thumping election victory on the 12th of December. But each and every one of you know in your heart that that is not what's happening. Some people confuse with the thousands. Others, the thousands with the millions. Others, the first month of pregnancy with the last month of pregnancy. All of these are very different things. You can assemble a few hundred people to boo anybody. It doesn't add up to a row of beans. You can assemble a few hundred people, maybe even a few thousand people, to cheer anybody. And that doesn't add up to a row of beans either because a general election is fought amongst well over 40 million people, and most of those are not on Twitter, or even on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. The people I meet every day, all day, in the West Midlands are not much occupied by ideological blood tests of other people's tweets. They're shivering in the cold and wondering how they are going to get by, and bitterly complaining. I'm bound to tell you, about Labour's Brexit policy, which I have said to you from the very beginning. Don't accuse me of just coming up with this. I told you from the beginning that Labour's Brexit policy hamstrung them, cut their <laughs> tendon, tender, made it impossible for them to hold seats in strong Brexit areas sent of all Labour-held constituencies voted for Brexit. 25 of the top 35 target seats for Labour to win, to form a government, voted for Brexit. And if you get 40% of the vote just two years ago, promising to respect the result of the 2016 Brexit referendum, and then change your mind and tell people they're going to have to vote again in a second referendum, don't expect them to be queuing up to vote for you, vote for you, it's not the pollsters that are going to cost Labour the election. Of course the monstrous barrage of propaganda from the mass media is truly horrific, unbelievably horrific and worse, horrifically effective. But Labour have always fought a barrage of media propaganda. If that was impossible, Harold Wilson would never have won, not once, but four times. If it was impossible to punch through the media barrage, then Clement Attlee would never have won the landslide victory that he did win in 1945. It's very, very difficult, but it is not impossible. And new media, of course, allows uh, a counterbalance to the mainstream media offensive against Labour, which is an additional factor in this general election campaign. Now, the propaganda offensive has reached uh, new and even more awful depths. And I know that, and I know that it's effective because people come up and say it to me in the street, to me. They come up to me and say, I'm voting for you, but Corbyn's an IRA man. They come up to me and say I'm voting for you but Corbyn's an anti-Semite. They don't even know what that means. But they say it. They have swallowed it. Hook line and sinker. The annual lecture by Sir Richard Dearlove, the head of the British Intelligence Service in the run up to and including the war on Iraq every year for three years He issues a pronunciamento which ends up miraculously on the front page of the Daily Mail, saying that Jeremy Corbyn is a security risk. Well, that'll come as news to Her Majesty, who has made him a privy councillor. That'll come as news to the speakers of the House of Commons under whom he has sat for 35 years. This is a bitter, sick joke. We're not talking about Lenin here. Jeremy Corbyn's not Lenin. He's a bearded, vegetarian, allotment-tending, pacifistic, Quakerish, slightly left of Michael Foote. Maybe not even left of Michael Foote. It's a measure of the false consciousness abroad in this country that a man like Corbyn can be so traduced as he has been so effectively. Now, you all know my bitter feelings about the dreadful mistakes that have been made in combating these lines of attack which have rained down on Corbyn for four long years. And I'm not just talking about his own MPs, though I could talk about them. Somebody asked me the other day, should I vote Labor? Would you vote Labor if you weren't standing yourself? Well. I said, who is it that you want me to vote for exactly? If I lived in Barking and Dagenham, would you want me to vote for Dame Margaret Hodge? If I lived in Birmingham Yardley, would you expect me to vote for Jess Phillips? For Wes Streeting? Would you expect me to vote for the 150, 60, 70 war criminals that are standing in the labor colors in this election? This is what you've got to face up to. People are not being asked to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. They're being asked to vote for Ruth Smith, at least in Stoke. They're being asked to vote for hundreds of Labour MPs that have betrayed everything that Labour is supposed to stand for because, unfortunately, elections in this country are fought seat by seat. And Labour's going to lose, not win a very considerable number of seats right across the West Midlands, right across the East Midlands, in South Wales, in the northwest of England, and in the northeast of England. Write it down that I said it here this night, more than two weeks distant from the polls. Now, some of you can't handle the truth. Some of you would prefer if I came on here and said the opposite to that, i.e. the opposite of what I actually believe. But I don't do that. If I have a reputation for anything in politics, it's telling you what I believe to be the truth. And that is what I believe to be the truth. We're not only speaking, of course, about the British general election, we're speaking about the American general election. Mayor Bloomberg has just joined the race, that's right. He's going to spend scores of millions of dollars of his own money to contest for the Democratic Party's nomination. Now, um, if you buy that, I've got a bridge here in London I can sell you. His purpose, of course, is to drive a wedge into a Democratic Party deeply divided between seven dwarves and Bernie Sanders. Well, six dwarves. That Tulsi Gabbard's all right too. Six dwarfs, Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is the only person who can beat Donald Trump. I still maintain and believe that. And that means that if Bernie Sanders were to become president of the United States, America will be getting a national health service. Imagine. Just as we, if Boris Johnson is elected with a majority might be losing ours, except we've already substantially lost ours. I'll be talking to Dr. Bob Gill who's made a brand new film about the great heist, the privatisation of the National Health Service. And as he'll point out, I'm sure, because I've interviewed him before, we've been privatising the National Health Service since the 1980s. First by Margaret Thatcher and then supercharged by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, then by David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, and you can imagine a second term for Boris Johnson. So there's a lot of uh, fake uh, horror about this, as if it wasn't already happening. Me, I'm for the total nationalisation of the National Health Service. No private practice, our own pharmaceutical industry buying. Our own drugs that we develop ourselves, not making fat the directors and the shareholders of Big Pharma. I'm for an end, a cleaning of the Augian stable of part privatization of the National Health Service. We'll see if Dr. Bob Gill agrees with me. Now finally, what about the royal family? The Queen's a very old lady, long life to her, I bear her no ill will, but she doesn't deserve the family that she has got and sometimes married into. Uh, The conduct of what was at least her favourite son, the Duke of York, at least he currently is, who knows where he'll be by the end of the week, has been internally banished maybe even externally banished into exile, maybe Bahrain is indeed the place for him because his conduct in fraternization at best and collaboration at worst with one of the most evil, sordid criminals to emerge from the moneyed classes of the United States in modern history. I refer, of course, to Jeffrey Epstein. We have been ahead of the curve on the Jeffrey Epstein case. We've been following it right from the very beginning when most people didn't know how to pronounce his name and some people still don't. It's still a controversial matter. It's Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein. He is, I presume, dead. One must presume that he committed suicide. One must presume if one is not a blithering idiot, that his suicide was facilitated by the state which was worried about what would emerge about his true role and his true employers in the course of decades of dirty deeds, dirty business. And the fact that one of the queen's sons was in and out of Epstein's townhouse like Piccadilly Circus, like a railway station, is very troubling indeed. In fact, it's now begun to be an issue in the British general election, raising for the first time in a long time the question of can the British monarchy survive. So I've got a poll question for you, and it's about Epstein's girlfriend, Lady Ghislaine Maxwell, the daughter of Robert Maxwell. Once upon a time, an adversary of mine. And like most of the uh, uh, adversaries of mine, he came to a sticky end. Here's the question. Where is Ghislaine Maxwell? A. Dead. B. Israel. C. Working and walking in Pizza Express. Caleb Mopan is uh, my favorite U.S. Correspondent. Uh, he's a speaker, he's a writer, he's a political analyst. There's no one better to go to to ask what's happening on the U.S. political scene. And he joins me now via Skype. Caleb, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Sure. Always a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, let's start with the breaking news uh, that the multi-billionaire Bloomberg has joined the Democratic Party race. How does that compute?
2: Well, it's certainly not a surprise, because anyone who paid attention to the Democratic debates that have recently been happening has been hoping that some kind of wild card could be played it seemed almost like the Democratic Party at this point has a strategy of boring the American people into voting for them, really. The fifth Democratic Party debate here this 9th November was the most boring debate people have seen in a long time. These impeachment inquiries taking place on Capitol Hill are also quite dull. Donald Trump, on the other hand, is a reality TV star who knows how to keep the American people watching as every move, tuning in, keeping them excited. So you had to wonder what were the Democrats going to do to try and get some more interest in their side of of this upcoming presidential election because the American public seems largely bored by what they have to offer. Now, perhaps there's some psychology there we don't understand. Perhaps boring the American people somehow will subtly get into their minds and get them to support them. We know the Democrats have lots of millionaires and billionaires backing them who, who, you know, research this kind of thing. But perhaps Bloomberg's entrance into the race, Bloomberg, the former mayor of the city that I'm in right now, New York City, uh, perhaps that'll make Make the Democratic camp more exciting and interesting to the American public.
1: Well, I I mean, let me ask a question which is obvious, at least over here, uh, but perhaps that's our ignorance. How does a billionaire like Bloomberg qualify as a Democrat? Most people in this country, Britain, imagine that the Democrats are vaguely like Labor, uh, blue-collar for the poor and the minorities and so on. This man had a shocking term of office as mayor of New York City, didn't he?
2: Well, indeed, and he wasn't a Democrat when he was here in New York City. Uh, the Democratic Party of New York City you can go all the way back to the Tammany Hall machine, and it's very much, uh, uh, you know, the institution, the ruling institution in New York City. When Bloomberg came in, that was seen as a continuation largely of the Giuliani. Uh, leadership where it was, you know, the Democratic Party, the labor unions uh, and the Tammany Hall uh, Democratic Party leadership in this city kind of being challenged. Um, but Bloomberg is very liberal, very associated with LGBT rights, uh, very associated with environmentalism. But at the same time, uh, he was very, very strongly opposed to laws that would require a minimum wage for contracted companies that did business with New York City. He very famously compared such a law requiring companies that did business with New York City to, uh, to the Soviet Union. Uh, basically, uh, he said that, that, that we, can't, uh, we can't have a um, guaranteed wage. We can't require companies to pay decent wage because, look, the Soviet Union fell, so clearly communism is not the answer. Uh, very bizarre. Uh, he also got quite a bit of flack for an ad campaign in the subways of New York City urging uh, teenage mothers uh, not to have children. And the ads were particularly harsh, and they seemed to almost target ethnic minorities. People saw them as almost Malthusianism. Uh, These ads basically urging, uh, you know, low-income people and ethnic minorities uh, not to have children, you know, kind of shaming teen mothers. Uh, That was quite a controversy. Um, Also, he's known worldwide for the infamous uh, soda law, restricting the size of of soda that you would drink uh, uh, and and soft drinks, Um, but he was also known for uh, being quite harsh on the Muslim community of New York City, Uh, Bloomberg being an outspoken supporter of Israel, um, and the NYPD having to watch a very anti-Islamic film called The Third Jihad in their training, a film that was widely criticized uh, by even strong supporters of U.S. foreign policy. Um, You know, the Bloomberg administration uh, is associated with a lot of things that many liberals in New York City and elsewhere wouldn't be particularly fond of. Um, however, uh, you know, Mayor Bloomberg is trying to show that he's more of a liberal Democrat. Uh, he, he recently went to an African-American church and apologized for what was one of the key policies of the New York City Police Department under his leadership, which was stop and frisk. Um,
1: no, I, I mean, it's they very they easy, c- it's very easy, Caleb, it. to be liberal about to the working class. Uh, on wages and conditions and so on we we know that kind of a liberal uh, here uh, but how much of his own money is he going to put into this race on my twitter feed we'll try and get uh, caleb back because i'm fascinated by
0: a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend
1: The entry uh, into the race of uh, Mayor Bloomberg and wondering if that forecloses the possibility of, believe it or not, a rerun by Hillary Clinton because many people whose views I respect were very strongly of the view that Hillary Clinton was about to enter the race. The argument would be, look, these seven dwarfs and Bernie Sanders Uh, are just not going to do it. We need some big star quality. Joe Biden is 20 years past any star quality that he might once have had. None of the other new stars that they predicted have uh, risen to the challenge. And so if we're not careful, the argument would go, we'll end up with Bernie Sanders. And if Bernie Sanders wins, well, we'll be the Soviet Union. Uh, To coin uh, a phrase, so we've got Caleb back now. Let me ask him that question. Caleb. I'm wondering if uh, Bloomberg's entry Forecloses the possibility of a Hillary Clinton rerun most people find that uh, Almost unbelievable, but a lot of people thought uh, that it might well happen. Does it foreclose that right for a start?
2: It seems to. Uh, The forces that would have wanted Hillary Clinton as as the Democratic nominee and as as the presidential candidate uh, seem to be putting themselves behind Bloomberg. Now, earlier, there was talk of a run by Howard Schultz, who is the owner of Starbucks. And Bloomberg very famously said that he, would, uh, would, would back Howard Schultz if Bernie Sanders got the nomination, uh, that, that Howard Schultz and Bloomberg both said that Sanders uh, was unacceptable, that they, they, would not, they would do everything they could to defeat Bernie Sanders. Um, and it seems Bloomberg entering the race is an expression of, of the anyone but Bernie sentiments among a lot of very wealthy Democrats who don't care for Trump, but they're far more afraid of, of any kind of social democratic or populism from the left. How much
1: money will Bloomberg put into this, and and will that money make a difference, Caleb?
2: Oh, it'll certainly make a difference. People talk about how expensive U.S. elections really are. One thing that really illustrates what we're talking about here is if you watched the previous debates, If you turned the sound off and just listened to the, you know, looked at the expressions on the faces, when Bernie Sanders was talking and saying things that in a lot of Europe would just be common sense, like people should be given health care and people should get education, um, people shouldn't be in student debt, as he was speaking, you saw this smirk on the face of Elizabeth Warren and on the face of Joe Biden. They're just smirking there. They have just utter contempt. They're almost kind of laughing, almost snickering. They don't take this seriously. And you would think, okay, maybe they're laughing at Bernie Sanders, but reality is, they're laughing at their base because average Democrats think a lot like Bernie Sanders. Polls show that. The rank and file of the Democratic Party agrees with Bernie Sanders, not with Hillary Clinton and not with Mayor Bloomberg. And the Democratic Party elite, the DNC machine, very much has contempt for the people who vote for them over and over and over again. And this tension is what contributed to all the the controversy surrounding 2016. I was at the convention, I saw it, uh, where people were protesting in the convention about how it had clearly been rigged against Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of tension within the Democratic Party, as it's controlled by a group of people who believe in economic neoliberalism and privatizations and war on unions and the rank and file of the Democratic Party that really do believe in free healthcare, free education, organized labor, better pay for teachers, uh, you know, all kinds of things that Bernie Sanders stands for, and they smirk and, and have utter contempt for uh, from the leadership.
1: Now, will Bloomberg coming in uh, push some of the, I called them maybe unkindly, the seven dwarfs. Uh I say that in this race, the seven dwarves and Bernie Sanders. Uh, will any of those Seven Dwarves. you don't have to own that phrase, Uh, fall out now that Bloomberg has come in?
2: Well, we shall see. Um, It seems like, uh, if you'll notice, Kamala Harris, uh, if you watched the last debate, it almost looked like she'd aged 10 years since the previous debate. I mean, she's still recovering from the the Tulsi Gabbard takedown that she endured, where Tulsi Gabbard called out Kamala Harris For the fact that she tried to keep an innocent man on death row, that she was basically the queen of the military or the prison industrial complex when she was running California. Um, And she, you know, came on the debate stage and she gave her rebuttal or response to Tulsi Gabbard. And it was it was like all she had on her was, God forbid, she had met with Donald Trump oh my goodness, she had criticized Barack Obama and his foreign policy. And it showed that, that Kamala Harris, who was someone that many of the people that I'm sure are now backing Bloomberg, had put a lot of faith in, this former prosecutor and now senator from California. Um, you know, Kamala Harris seems to be finished. Uh, the poll numbers show that she is just not of interest any longer. Um, they weren't particularly nice to Tulsi Gabbard. They've accused her of being a, a Russian operative. They weren't particularly nice to Andrew Yang either. Um, You know, and Andrew Yang is another candidate uh, that seems to be out of favor. He got less than seven minutes, I believe, on the debate stage, Uh, whereas uh, Bernie Sanders is now a pill that they almost have to swallow. They have to allow him because he has so much support uh, among rank-and-file Democrats. Uh, This is going to be an interesting race. Now that Bloomberg is in, the Democratic side seems to have some, some, you know, possible interest in it, but Bloomberg, uh, you know many people in the city that he ran. He ran it during the Occupy Wall Street protests. He, was, he oversaw the brutal crackdown on Occupy Wall Street protesters. Um, you know, this is a man that has, has a, lot, a lot on his record that many rank-and-file Democrats approve of.
1: Final uh, question, and I'm grateful for your time as always. Uh, how will Trump be viewing uh, all of this? Who would he most like to fight and who would he least like to fight?
2: Well, I think that Trump would very much like to run against an establishment Democrat because Trump's entire image is that he's a maverick, that he's a wild card, that he's fighting the status quo. He's, you know, turning up the apple cart and and draining the swamp. And Bloomberg is somebody that Trump knows very well. I mean, where is Trump's real estate uh, career? Where does that come from here in New York City? So um, I think a a Trump-Bloomberg race is something that Trump would be very well prepared for. Um, however, something coming from the left, so, uh, someone who could also have that kind of maverick and rebel image, but coming from the left is something that Trump might not be as, as prepared to, to go up against. Uh, w- we know that during the 2016 election, Fox News desperately tried to organize a Sanders-Trump debate, and the Trump camp wouldn't have it. They just wouldn't have it. The idea of Trump and Sanders on the same stage together is something they were terrified of happening. And I think that that fear is still well within the White House and within the Trump camp.
1: Will he survive the impeachment challenge, Caleb?
2: I think he will. I don't think that the Democrats uh, have the energy in, in their side uh, to to remove him from office. but. That said, things have been changing in the USA very rapidly, right? It may be be that that, that things rapidly shift, but as it stands currently, the energy to impeach Trump is coming from the Democratic side, Uh, but the Republicans still have the Senate majority, and they don't seem to want to remove Trump from office.
1: Caleb Mopan, as always, a pleasure an honor to have you on the mother of all talk shows. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. There is a poll. Where is Ghislaine Maxwell? Is she a dead? Is she B in Israel? Is she C working in walking in Pizza Express? Now, Hong Kong went to the polls today. Municipal election, a record turnout, 69%. This follows what seems to have been the best part of a year of rioting, the destruction of public and private property, the assaulting of Supporters of Chinese rule in Hong Kong with extreme prejudice. I watched a video I wish I hadn't of one man, a supporter of China, literally being set alight. I wonder if these polls will produce any change in the political governance at a local level in Hong Kong. I wonder what China is planning. Now, our guest uh, is uh, with us. He's uh, Tom McGregor, though, actually, he's Thomas Polkin II on my leaflet, but it's Tom McGregor here. Uh, Tom, that's your uh, pen name, I presume. Uh, I'm grateful to you for joining us. Tell us first, if you would, uh, the uh, situation on the ground on election day in Hong Kong. What can you say?
3: Well, sure, uh, thank you for inviting me to your show. Uh, uh, from, from my understanding, there was, as you mentioned already, there was record turnout, and I had checked the news a, a few minutes ago, and it looks like a lot of the pro-democracy candidates had won the election, and uh, pro-Beijing uh, peop- uh, candidates were not very successful. Basically, it seems as if the Hong Kong people are are just—I uh, uh, I wouldn't say they're supporting the riots, but they're just. It seems as if that there is a very strong message that uh, they are very supportive of this uh, pro-democracy group. And it's, what, what I'm going to be curious about is those who were elected, are they going to solve the problems of Hong Kong? Are they going to be able to end the riots? Are they going to be able to be uh, end the violence? If they do resolve that, then they're doing the right thing. But it really depends on what is the real solution. Are these candidates going to be successful? I am not sure yet, but we, we will wait to see.
1: Well, of course, that is one possible route to a solution uh, by giving responsibility for the local government in Hong Kong uh, to the people that yesterday were trying to burn it down. Uh, if, uh, if they're going to be true to their Oath and the weight of their responsibilities, perhaps that might lead to a diminution in tension, uh, and so on. On the other hand, if they're going to use the Hong Kong councils, the municipal power there, as a Trojan horse for more, that's going to be a much bigger problem for China, isn't it?
3: Yeah, definitely. Obviously, if the riots continue and the protest and the violence gets worse, then the, the solution obviously was not the elections. The fact of the matter is, is the Hong Kong people apparently feel that, uh, that they're blaming maybe the the Beijing uh, for whatever reason for the violence. I don't believe that is true, but the facts are is that uh, they did vote and they were very overwhelming in support of these pro-democracy candidates. So let's see what happens. Uh, I, the fact is, is that, it's obvious that Beijing will be disappointed. Um, they they had called me to say, you know, to whatever. But what what I am getting at is the fact is that uh, these candidates, if they're elected, it's they're taking they're going to have to take the responsibility for Hong Kong, and they're going to have to create the solutions. If they don't create the solutions, they will be voted out of office next time. I think what basically is happening is. Here's your chance. You've been doing all this talk about how a democracy is going to solve everything. Well, let's see what happens. Uh, but the fact is, is if they don't solve it, uh, they'll be voted out of office next, next round.
1: But what are their demands? Summarize them for us, Tom, if you would. Are these transitional demands, i.e., demands that could only be uh, conceded as part of a transformation from one system Uh, to another system, which is what they look like essentially to me. Uh, It seems to me that it's not so much pro-democracy because, of course, there was absolutely zero democracy in Hong Kong while the British ruled it. Literally zero democracy for 150 years. Uh, In fact, we prided ourselves, we even invented the rubber bullet uh, in Hong Kong to shoot down anyone looking for democracy. So Britain never conceded democracy to Hong Kong. Uh, The new dispensation has given uh, a kind of democracy, certainly a local uh, democracy. But if their demands are, as I believe they are, uh, that, uh, that Hong Kong is not actually part of China, obviously China cannot concede that. And therefore you have a kind of irresistible force, immovable object, don't you?
3: Yeah, definitely. This is going to be a serious issue. And if you look closely at the five demands, most of them are just unreasonable demands. They want to say that the riots are not riots, but they were peaceful protests, that anyone arrested, even if they committed crimes such as murdering someone or putting someone on fire or uh, doing serious public property damage that these people should get an amnesty and then it should be erased from their records, that's that's nonsense. People who committed crimes need to be punished. They need to face justice. Just because they say they love democracy while they set a man on fire, should, they should be punished for that. They should not get, get away with that. But, and also, you're right about the British. And you know, what's interesting about the people of Hong Kong, is it's almost like they are people who are, they always think they the grass is greener on the other, on the other side. So when it was the British ruling them, then suddenly they love China, they love Beijing because they, they were Chinese. And now all of a sudden, China has uh, Beijing has some control over them, and then they suddenly discover that they love the British more. Well, they, they're never going to be happy. Uh, there's always going to be problems, but that's the way the world is. There, you always have scenarios where people are always going to complain about the system and they're going to be upset about everything. The Hong Kong people uh, uh, seem to be that way. Well, guess what? Now they elected all these people who claim they're going to solve everything. Well, let's see if they actually do it. Will they make Hong Kong better? Let's find out. And let's wait and see.
1: What, has China made any comment yet, any reaction to the election results, or are they still coming in?
3: Well, they're still coming in, and you also have to be aware of what, it's Beijing time. I mean, this is 4 a.m. in the morning, uh, and the results don't come in until a little bit after around midnight. So it's going to take some time for people to digest it here in China. I think uh, they've already had an awareness that despite the, many Chinese had an awareness that despite all the violence and the riots, that overall most Hong Kong people are not very, uh, look very, very favorably on Beijing. So I would imagine they had already anticipated these results. It's not going to come in as a shock. And it's also a good opportunity for Beijing to show that under the the one country, uh, two systems, that if they have the democracy and they recognize the election results, that's actually a very good sign from Beijing's side because it shows sincerity on their part.
1: Well, I was just going to make that point. It's a strange kind of dictatorship, China, uh, that allows uh, Hong Kong to have these elections, first of all, and then Mm -hmm. fairly counts the votes, and declares that they have lost. Yeah,
3: it will be. It will be
1: interesting to see how the uh, overall reaction will be.
3: But the facts are, is that obviously, if the election results show that there was an overwhelming support for the pro-democracy uh, groups and parties, it will be a little bit harder to discount that. So, uh, if I was to talk to people, or if I was to give suggestions or advice to anyone in, in China. My recommendation is just go ahead and accept the results, and just let and put all the responsibility on them. They're the ones who need to resolve the riots and the protesting. And if they don't, then uh, you know Beijing may need to, to take different measures to handle that situation. So we'll see how it goes, and you know I'm sure that many Chinese are disappointed, uh, but at the same time. Uh, they
4: have
3: to realize that the Hong Kong voters uh, did vote, and, and it was a very
1: overwhelming uh, results. Tom, thank you very much for your wisdom, and especially for talking to me at 4 a.m. Beijing time. Thank you so much indeed for everything, uh, my friend. I appreciate it very much uh, indeed. That's uh, Tom Polkin II, uh, who is a uh, journalist and commentator uh, as you could tell, uh, a US man uh, living and working in China. Let me know what uh, you think of what he said. 02077 982 Got lots of social media to uh, get through. I've got a couple of minutes, I think, to do that uh, before the uh, break. Uh, Maria Richman says Ghislaine Maxwell is at Leslie Wexner's house. He's the owner of Victoria's Secrets, or at least he was. Uh, Wisdom Game TV says hello from California. Nathan Byrne says Corbyn is a weak old man who can't control his own party. Liberal Labour stroke London Labour is a bourgeois joke. Forest Fire says Bloomberg is polling at 3%. He only hurts Biden. And Robert says Bloomberg could do a big one on Donald. X-ray vision says, George, brother, surely you're not going to risk the NHS under the Tories or the Brexit party. You see, I don't even understand what that question means. It means you weren't listening to anything I said. I told you here, and I told the BBC I would give you my right arm right now for Jeremy Corbyn to walk into 10 Downing Street as the Prime Minister. But I'm telling you he's not going to. And I'm giving you the reasons why he's not going to. But you, I can clearly infer from your question Translate that as me wanting the Tories of the Brexit party to run Britain. What's wrong with you and people like you? Can't you just listen? Clear your ears of your utter prejudice, hysteria, because that's what it is. Anyone who disagrees with you becomes a Tory, becomes an enemy. You really make me angry. Scouser-Lar says, it seems to me that the establishment in the Democratic Party are doing their best to get Donald Trump re-elected. I'm sure they would all prefer Trump over Sanders. And Liam Brady says, so George, you're saying there's no point in voting Labour. What's the alternative?" I didn't say that. I said, are you asking me to vote Labor for Margaret Hodge? And Let me turn the question round to you, Liam, because I know you're one of the zealots in hot pursuit of your zealotry. Let me turn the question round to you. If you lived in Barking and Dagenham, would you vote for Dame Margaret Hodge, would you? Well, if you would, there's a very substantial difference between your position and mine. Uh, this is still, this is still him. Who is this? I'm tired of George being against Corbyn now. He's been closing the polls, so I'm not sure where he's been looking clear to me you've been hijacked by the right. Have you actually been listening to this show? Have you actually listened to the last one hour and 21 minutes of this broadcast and the hundreds and hundreds of broadcasts that went before it? Hijacked by the right? And he's not closing in the polls. Give yourself a shake. He's not closing in the polls. Labour is on 29% average. The Tories are well over 40% average. In one poll, the Tories are 17 points ahead. Don't fool yourself or don't expect me to be a party to fooling other people. The Red Resistance. Hear what you say about Labor's chances, GG. There's a few things to throw into the pot though. As every hour passes, a Tory voter dies and a Labor voter comes online. Labor has a brilliant ground game and the polls don't always count younger voters. That last point is true. Polls are not reliable but over a considerable period of time an average of all these polls is very likely to be something like the final result. I don't know about a Tory voter dying every hour. If that were true I could not exult in it. I wish no one death and neither should you and i'm not sure that another labor voter comes online but i'll take your point that nationally labor has a big support amongst the younger voters and the conservatives have big support amongst the older voters but here's my killer point 50% 50 of working-class voters intend to vote conservative. 17% of working-class voters intend to vote labor. Now you may not care about that. For me, a labor movement without workers is not a labor movement at all. Socialism without the working class is not socialism at all. Young or old, it's class that counts most. And I'm telling you, and you must know it because you're an intelligent communicator. I see your stuff. You must know that the more working class you are, the more likely you were to have voted for Brexit and the less likely you are to be voting Labor in the general election. now. That doesn't count on a big national public opinion poll as much as it counts on the ground game in the individual constituencies, in the Red Cars, in the Dudleys, in the Birminghams, in the South Wales, that's where it counts. In our system, if you lose by one vote, you've lost. Robert Durbin says by email, why can't we all just get along? <laughs> and Dr. Fath, URS, says, Explosive start. I hear Pizza Express, in honour of Prince Andrew, has created the Pizza Royale. It has plenty of dough. <laughs> Very good. Is oily, cheesy, and full of bologna. That is the tweet of the night so far. Scouser Lars says, Blair and Mandelson inside Corbyn's labour whilst you and Livingston are outside of it. Really? This has been Corbyn's greatest error, in my opinion. The appeasement of enemies in Labour may well be his undoing in this election. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, Red Resistance again says, I don't know where Ghislaine is, but I guarantee she won't be taking any late-night relief over the back of a luxury yacht anytime soon. This is a reference to the... Uh, watery fate of her father. Your vegan coach says, George, let's just say miracles of miracles that Corbyn wins the general election. How likely is it in your opinion that he will be able to implement his policies without the Blairites trying to impede every move he makes? I'm treating that as a rhetorical question, coach, because I know the answer to that and so do you. The blind leading the blind Says, monarchy, if the Queen had any sense of leadership would she have not voiced her opinion on the many atrocities, scandals, wars carried out on her behalf throughout her reign? A head of state who has for the most part totally slipped under the rug. Why? Well, there's a new series of The Crown. I've watched all the series uh, up to now. It's pretty fascinating uh, stuff. It's like a walk through my lifetime. Uh, And I'm not sure that's entirely fair, because we have a constitutional monarchy, and we wouldn't have one for long if the Queen piped up with her own political views in public uh, every time there was a a controversy. Um, Roya says, British monarchy survived Diana's history, they'll survive this one too. Prince Andrew do much better with his connections around the world, maybe he's not royal, and JPT Cartoons says, I reckon Ghislaine Maxwell could well be somewhere in Windsor, wouldn't that be funny if she was uh, holed up in one of the many rooms in Her Majesty's houses. Next Saturday is the premiere of a film worth waiting for. It's made by Dr. Bob Gill, we showed you some of the footage last week, it's the great NHS Heist and dr. Bob joins me now, and I'm very grateful to you Bob. uh, I was with you at the beginning when you were uh, Heroically trying to raise the funds and awareness in order to make this movie the great NHS heist what I'm particularly interested in is what tense this is written in Uh, Because you're not saying that there will be an NHS heist if such and such a thing happens a trade deal with Washington, for example, or a renewed term of office for Boris Johnson. It's written to me in a tense which suggests this heist is already underway. Have I got that right? You're spot on, George.
5: This heist has been going on for 30 years. Uh, consecutive governments had played their part. And what we're trying to do with the film is to say the job isn't completely over. Uh, Public awareness is key to stop this from going any further. But the work has been done, Margaret Thatcher set the ball rolling, Uh, she introduced an internal market, she started to outsource essential services, cleaning, catering and we had other changes which are brought in unfortunately under the last Labour government, the new Labour government between 1997 and 2010. Rather than reversing Thatcher's privatisation, they ran with it and they introduced the monstrosity of private finance initiative, which is a a way of saddling the NHS with debt to justify the asset grab that is going on at the moment. And the other things that uh, Tony Blair enabled was, for the first time ever, the outsourcing of actual medical care, using the excuse that the private sector, our friends in the private sector, were just helping us out over a temporary problem. But the reality was that his hospital building program also contracted down the NHS. The number of beds dropped by a third every time they built a new PFI hospital. So he was responsible for the biggest
1: hospital bed closure program. Bigger than Thatcher.
5: Bigger than Thatcher,
1: More privatisation than Thatcher.
5: More privatisation, and he got away with more because everybody on the left had their guard down and they felt for his charisma, you know?
1: I think that's an important point to make uh, because, of course, uh, to coin a phrase, Tony Blair didn't hijack uh, the Labour Party. He was elected as its leader. And uh, the Labour Party, overwhelmingly, with some honourable exceptions, Jeremy Corbyn being... Uh, splendidly one of them the labor party went uh, went along with all of these private uh, public partnerships ppps pfis they went along with the outsourcing they went along with uh, the privatization which they now seek to terrify us with Mm. oh if you leave the european union (laughs) you, you you'll get privatized in the health service when they themselves facilitated, voted through these privatisations. I think that's a pretty big lesson for people.
5: Well, it's a shame they're they're in a bit of a spot because in order to awaken the public, they need to educate them as to what's gone on. Now, if you leave a key 13-year period out of the story, it doesn't make sense. So it has to be presented as a new threat, but the reality is Nine, ten, nine out of ten of the steps have already been completed. The guy in charge now, Mr Simon Stevens, formerly of United Health Group, which is the America's biggest insurer, is leading the NHS. There's no mention of this guy. So we have the NHS run by an insurance man who is forcing through reforms as we speak in general practice, which will effectively destroy general practice, and there's nothing coming from the Labour Party. So this is a concern. But I've looked at their manifesto and there are some good things in it. But I would like it to go much further and I need to see the detail.
1: Well, uh, I think uh, we, can, we can all agree that uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, would be, uh, would be a, a stalwart, an absolute stalwart defender of the NHS. And as I said, he was an opponent, as was I, of the Blair-Brown era's uh, privatisation Measures, as was Ken Livingstone, who was, of course, kicked out of the Labour Party. And I mentioned him just a few minutes ago when he was mayor of London. He fought the, these PFIs and so on. Um, but let's talk then uh, about what's in store. What more damage can they do? What could another Boris Johnson government do? And if he makes a trade deal with the US, if we leave the EU, what are the perils for the NHS in that?
5: What has already happened is you've had the financing of the NHS structured in such a way that it has been set up to fail. So you've had this engineered crisis. So we're seeing how PFI debt will be used to liberate the public from their assets which are the hospital and the land. The other thing that's happened is the NHS culture has been removed from a public service into a business mentality with this fake internal market that has been running uh, for some decades now. Um, And the other thing that's happened is the leadership. Now, you mentioned the Labour Party. If I look at my own union, the BMA, if you look at most institutions in this country which have memberships, there's there's a huge disconnect between the leadership and the membership. And Jeremy Corbyn has been a victim of this, whereby the vast majority of the members support him But the PLP is taking a significant proportion, is taking every opportunity to trip him up and throw him under a bus. Within the NHS, the leadership within the NHS has been selected to carry out the privatisation. So what's left? The land we've talked about, patient data has been lined up to be handed over to companies like Google and Amazon, believe
1: it or not, have done a deal with the GP... Selling people's medical records.
5: Not even selling, George, just giving it away. So the the public doesn't get anything for this. But fundamentally they're breaching patient confidentiality. This is a huge can of worms which nobody's talking about. But what remains to be done is the insurance industry to grab control of NHS budgets, which at the moment, 20% go to fund hospitals, 80% goes to fund general practice, and most of that is recirculated via the hospital you need to introduce the insurance industry into that flow of money. And Simon Stevens has developed a brilliant way of conning GPs into signing up to a new contract, which is a network contract, which will over time see their list, because money follows a patient, will see the control of their capitation list given over to the control of the insurance industry. And that's what lays ahead in the next two or three years if Boris Johnson gets his way.
1: What does that mean for the individual uh, patient? What impact on their lives and treatment would that have?
5: Fundamentally, you can't make money out of healthcare if you want to do it well. So, w- what private healthcare does, it avoids complicated patients and it avoids people who can't afford to pay. So, if you can't afford to pay, you may be able to access Skid Row, remnant NHS services that they haven't managed to give away. If you are well, in, well off enough to get insurance. Well, you are the target of all of this. As long as you keep paying your premiums, you'll be fine. When you get sick with something relatively trivial, they'll pay up. When you become sick and expensive, like with a cancer, there will be a limit on the funding and then you will be abandoned. So the targets of these reforms aren't the poor because nobody cares about them. The targets of these reforms are the middle class. So there is a sort of enlightened self-interest for everybody in this country, irrespective of their income, to defend a universal publicly provided service, because without it, they will be gouged and abandoned when they most seriously need health care.
1: The more you talked about it, the more American it sounded. And yet, uh, here we have Bernie Sanders and dragging some of the other candidates in his wake with him, campaigning effectively on bringing the NHS to the United States. Wouldn't it be the ultimate of ironies if America got an NHS just as we lost it?
5: Absolutely. It's mind-boggling. What I I want to do with my film and the reason we went to America to make the film, part of it, is to to point out this irony that we're going in one direction and America's trying to go in the other direction. The other similarity we share with America is how corrupt our politics has become. So, effectively, the corporations buy legislation, by sponsoring senators and politicians in America. Well, here we have the revolving door. And when the Health and Social Care Act went through in 2012, something like 200 parliamentarians had direct interest in private health care. So the similarities are growing by the day.
1: Including former health secretaries.
5: Absolutely. So you have Alan Milburn, who has private
1: interests. He was a Labour health He was, he was a Labour
5: health secretary. The other Labour health secretary, Patricia Hewitt, who went on to work in private health care. And Stephen Dorrell is another one who works for, I think is KPMG, who have been advising and facilitating and propagandizing for these privatization. So in Britain,
1: you don't get the money up front, but you've got a guarantee of a good number once you come through the revolving door. It's
5: far more sophisticated than brown paper bags. that's very British. So 1980s. Now it is the memberships of boards, shareholdings, and consultancies.
1: Now, uh, how can people uh, watch your film? I mean... I know, as a filmmaker myself, uh, it's exceedingly difficult to get into cinemas. So, but there are many other platforms, many other ways. Give us uh, how people listening and watching this now can get The Great NHS Heist.
5: Well, first I'll encourage them to register on our website, so they will know about updates, which is thegreatnhsheist.com. We're hoping that on the 30th, we will launch this on Vimeo, which is a platform, and it will be a pay-per-view set up to start off with, just to recoup and help us publicize the film and hopefully hold other other screenings. But in order to preserve my sanity and marriage, once I've done the launch, I'm going to hand it over to local groups to say, put on a screening. I'm happy to come and do a Q&A afterwards, but please do not wait for others to do this. We've given you a tool of information information that you will not see on mainstream media that you need to use to wake people up irrespective of the class because everybody will lose if this carries on
1: well uh, i think uh, it's a fantastic job that you've done we need to get it out there if there's anything i can do on social media on this this platform and others uh, to draw people's uh, attention to it of course i will i wish you all the best what time is your Red carpet. I'm assuming I was invited, but maybe that's...
5: Not... You were definitely invited. Wh- wh- you were top of the invitation list. Thank you. What time is it? Three o'clock. It will start at three, mm. and it will ru- we will have a small Q&A at the end, very brief, and then uh, breathe a sigh of relief that it's all gone well. It's
1: all gone well. Well, I God won't willingly. be able to be there, but I'll send a representative. Okay. Uh, I'll be uh, elsewhere, otherwise engaged. But my heart will be with you, and anything I can do, Bob. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. John. Not just for coming on the show, but for making this really important film, The Great NHS Heist. And you can register now on the website. Uh, that's greatnhsheist.com. There's another poll. It is, Whose Christmas ad campaign should Prince Andrew front? A, Lynx. <laughs> B, Pizza Express. C, Rack. Let me know, A, B, or C. <laughs> the result, final result of the first poll, 13% of you think Ghislaine Maxwell is dead, 52% of you think she's in Israel, 35% think she's working in walking in Pizza Express. <laughs> I would have thought B was a pretty good bet myself, don't you think?
6: Well, the big question is, where is she? And the last time that she's been seen, albeit that sighting was controversial, yeah. was... Uh, Just before or just after the strange death of Jeffrey Epstein? And that was at a fast food restaurant in Hollywood.
1: Although there's some... Suggestion that that was photoshop
6: indeed and we talked about the various things that online sleuths had discovered So that was the last time she purported to be in public mm. She's gone completely quiet even though now there's uh, there's talk that she was invited to a royal palace by the Duke of York Prince Andrew. Quite recently yes, and so in June he might be the only one maybe she's in the Falklands Getting a dose of adrenaline because according to some American lawyers she might need it <laughs>
1: Yes, indeed. Now Sylvia says, George, you are deluded. Uh, I like you so much, but your argument is very poor. Jeremy Corbyn can't intervene the way you think. Leadership sticks by the rules laid down by the party. Him intervening is obstruction, and it will distract him from the real issue facing millions. Think again, says Sylvia. Well, that might be your Uh, Understanding of leadership, it certainly isn't mine. I recall uh, Stanley Baldwin, who once famously opined, I am their leader, I must follow them. And Kate Biscop says, so is that it, George? Tories win the election, goodbye NHS, goodbye EU, and goodbye Scotland. Isn't it better to vote Labour and continue the fight for socialism from within? You can do whatever you like, Kate. I'm not telling you what to vote for. I'm telling you what I think the people are going to vote for. That's a distinctly different thing. As to goodbye EU, I've been trying to say goodbye to the EU since 1975. So you won't expect that to bring a tear uh, to my eye. And you heard Dr. Bob Gill describe how it was Labour that privatised the National Health Service. Many of the same Labour MPs that are still standing for election as Labour MPs on December the 12th. It was Labour that multiplied, accelerated the privatization of the health service. So don't give me that guff. Unless you want to join up with me and demand the complete renationalisation of the National Health Service. Unfortunately, that's not in the Labour Party's uh, manifesto. Sean Tabby says, I seriously think that Ghislaine is somewhere in South America, growing her hair long and has had plastic surgery, new identity and keeping a low profile. Lord Lurkin says, (laughs) I agree with you, the Corbyn project will end Christmas. It has been a frustrating ride for me. The Blairites have won back the helm of the Labour Party. To be honest, I don't believe Corbyn was ever in control of the party throughout his tenure. No, that's right. He was a stag at bay. He was besieged uh, by the people he had usurped by virtue of that stunning... Um, First and foremost, I'd like to say that I do have deep respect for you.
7: And I've seen you many times, and I've also funded a lot of your projects, such as your films, etc. Great, thanks. But I am, um, <laughs> I am, but I am losing some respect this evening
1: because it seems to be you've changed from a republican to a royalist. What, what, why does it seem to? How did it seem that way to you? I have been uh, a republican, just, Wayne. I have been a republican all of my life, from the age when my Irish grandfather used to talk to me about the crimes of the crown in Ireland, sitting on his knee. So how do you infer that I am a royalist? First of all, you don't have to shout. Now, uh,
7: this evening you mentioned the Queen, and and rightly you said that she's non-political. So you're making a stance, you open this up to debate. What I would say is her non-action, is establishment right-wing, and nothing stopping her. Same as I've done in the past. I've not got a mansion or a palace. I've took homeless people in. I help people that are skint. So why can't the Queen do that? There's many things the Queen could do, but she decides not to. But I'm not. Why I... are you specifically standing
1: up for the Queen? <laughs> I'm oh, no, oh, oh, a Republican.
7: I'm
1: doing... I don't there want to shout. I don't told. want to shout, Wayne, because you don't like it. So let me say it softly. I right. am a Republican. Which part of okay. that do you not understand? Well, what I
7: don't understand is, is when you were, don't take this the wrong way, but when you were an MP, I watched you sign that book near the speaker mm. and you had to pledge your
1: allegiance to the mm. royal family. All How MPs is that a Republican? Well, I did it with my fingers crossed and I did not swear it on a holy book because I could not swear on a holy book, that which I had no intention of fulfilling. But if I had not signed it, I would not have been allowed to be a member of parliament. And what would have been the point of that? The point of that, George, would have been
7: that you were making a stand, and I think that would have been more powerful. I think I did better.
1: I think I did better work in the parliament, rather than making a stand on the first day before anyone even knew who I was, and thus not a Member of Parliament at all. But how are we supposed to trust you when that
7: happens? And I do love you, George. I do love your politics. It sounds like it, yeah. And sometimes Uh, I get confused.
1: uh, I've had wives like that that (laughs) told me they really loved me, but it didn't seem or feel like it. Um, but, But listen, Wayne, Wayne, if you're asking me to be rude, vulgar, abusive, About an old lady called Queen Elizabeth. I won't do that. I have no animus. I have no no animus against her. So, when I was what you call sticking up for her, uh, I was doing so in defending her against the unfair charge that she, as a constitutional monarch, should have been campaigning against the wars that were being waged in her name. You know that she could not do that.
7: I have nothing against the Queen um, personally, of course I don't, it's, uh, it's what she stands
1: for on the political Well that's stance. why we're both Republicans Wayne. And by the way, if you think you've got to pick a fight with me, if you think everybody else is already converted, then that's a very odd uh, choice of priorities. I have been proselytizing for a republic in Britain all of my life. No. Oh. <laughs> but, he just, but it's just some strange things. <laughs> okay. Care. Okay, Wynne. Uh, um, where do you stand uh, on that? You're a
6: royalist, I guess. I was a royalist before I even knew how to sit on the throne, but um, my view is that the, the constitutional monarchy plays an important role in maintaining the constitution, and this has to do with more than tradition and history, I'm a fan of both, this will not be a mystery to anyone, but this is why I think it's important politicians today are more hated than they've ever been the heckles are larger and louder and more boisterous and even people who aren't politicians but may one day be are being heckled and uh, and abused and the rest of it it's very crucial to have a head of state that's quite literally apart from that fray as a royalist would say above the fray but i would think even most decent-minded Republicans would say apart from the fray. It helps one psychologically to say one loves the nation even if one hates the prime minister and God knows I've hated many of them. Blair being the worst of all time just happened to be cursed that he and I shared a similar lifetime. So that's one of the important reasons. The second is that it gives a continuity of statehood across different forms of government. Right now there are no MPs. We're in, a, we're in an election season, and whilst there is a government and is a privy council, uh, they're, they're, they're necessarily limited by issues from doing a great deal during a time when there is no parliament sitting, since at least the Glorious Revolution, that's been the case. But the state continues, the head of state remains in place, and the succession is an issue that's a foregone conclusion as opposed to something that one would fight about. And if people are fighting this much about Brexit, this much about the election, imagine even if there was a ceremonial Republican head of state the way there is in many Central and even Western Europe European countries, uh, the kind of fight that would be, frankly, if if it was a republic, I'd like Frank Bruno, but I suppose that uh, maybe some others would have a different view. But I think the system works. And to quote an American politician uh, to bolster a royalist argument, it was Barry Goldwater, one of the more interesting figures in the last 60 years of US politics, who in 1964 said, we must return to proven ways, not because they are old, but because they are true. If it's not broken, don't fix it. And the institution itself isn't broken, even if some of the individuals in it might be breaking a sweat sometime soon.
1: 02077 Let us know uh, what you think uh, about that. Before I take this next call, let me read this email. George, I love you. I've always loved your radio programmes. There's always a but coming when you hear uh, <laughs> that. But. but. Hillary would have been better for the Palestinian people than Trump. I know you hate her. I was no lover of her. But Trump is a disaster waiting to happen. We're doomed, says Ray in Islington. Well, Christopher's on the line. He's a Trump supporter. Let's hear what he has to say. Christopher,
8: welcome. Okay. Uh, First thing I want to talk about is uh, uh, Hillary. Yeah. She screwed them, too. (laughs) <laughs> she pretty much screwed everybody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I thought mean, that was her
6: husband.
1: Uh, I not... <laughs> <Adam laughs> thought that was her husband. Yeah, go ahead.
8: Um, no, no, uh, if you want to know how badly things she screwed over with Haiti, or, yeah. Yeah, of course. It's just one of the yeah. many countries she screwed over. Um... <laughs> now, you're,
1: uh, you're in Illinois, Christopher. Tell me this. Yes. Uh, how do you react to the news that Mayor Bloomberg has entered the race. Do you think it's a game-changer?
8: He's trying to do it for the same reason everybody else is trying to do it. He's
1: looking at prison times. I didn't know that. What, is, he, is he also up on a charge?
8: Probably, quite possibly. There are 127,000 sealed indictments right now.
1: Goodness me. Anyway, Christopher, tell us Uh, Is Trump going to survive the uh, impeachment process?
8: Considering he's going to put most of those people in jail, yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, he hasn't put many people in jail. It's mostly his people that have gone to jail.
8: (laughs) Well, Yeah, that's because they're trying to get him in jail. Yeah. They figure if they can get him in jail before he puts them in jail, then they've got a shot. But right now, Mm. (laughs) yeah, it's fun over
1: here. Um, Yeah, well, it sounds like it. Adam, uh, you're a Trump man. Uh, Better than Hillary or less bad than Hillary. I think most people uh, would agree with that.
6: Gloss half full, half empty. Yeah.
1: um, Do you think that Bloomberg changes anything? Do you think the impeachment process changes anything?
6: Well, first of all, I think the impeachment process plays into Trump's hands because... (laughs) pardon me, Trump is the kind of fighter that likes being up against the wall. He loves to push back. He loves to be the underdog in the tall tower. So because they were probably going to do it anyway, I think he's actually somewhat perhaps paradoxically, but he is pleased and he said as much over the last 48 hours that they're doing it before the election rather than attempting to do it in what I think is going to be a second Trump term. Because that way, instead of anyone having to talk about the issues all that's going to be discussed is the Democrats are going to run on a policy platform that says we tried to impeach Donald Trump we didn't manage to do it but now you can throw him out of the ballot box and Donald Trump can say losers I won now give me a confirmatory referendum to use some language from the UK opposition so I think Trump is very pleased and as for Bloomberg much like Trump himself he was threatening to stand for many previous elections and he never really did it but i don't think that he's much of a factor his financial outlet has some good journalism in it some not mixed bag but better that than It's better than most. I listen to their business
1: news every day.
6: Indeed. But beyond that, I don't think that he really plays at a national level. I think he's too niche. He's not even overwhelmingly popular in New York where he was the mayor. I I don't think it really adds much. What's another Tweedledum added to the verse? So I think Mm. it's a bit of a non-starter.
1: Okay. Uh, I think our caller has gone. So let me uh, continue. Uh, Mr. Lee Perez. Have you wondered why the Labour government would be so willing to have a national broadband owned by government free in every home? Mass surveillance by voted consent in an election. They will never go back on it. Connected to every phone, computer, TV, smart fridge, Alexa, everything. Britain was in uproar when it came out. We were being spied on. Snowden brought a lot of it out. If the government owns the internet, housing, transport, schools and universities across the country, it is one of the final steps to the Orwellian state. GCHQ will have the largest government surveillance program since Communist China, and we'd have voted for it. If a second referendum comes before we leave the EU, Labour should be served with a lawsuit. The first vote has to be actively cancelled prior to a legitimate second vote being held. do you stand on the, uh, on the broadband
6: issue? On that issue, I think it's one of the, the the writer illustrates one of the several reasons that I'm against this proposal. The second thing he mentions, though, is more interesting, particularly to a transatlantic audience. Much though I agree with the spirit of that comment, it wouldn't work because parliamentary sovereignty, sometimes known as parliamentary supremacy, means that the current parliament can overrule literally everything that was legislated by the previous parliament, The only caveat being European-derived legislation which be overturned at a British level because the EU, of course, turns the great parliament in Westminster into a provincial assembly rather than the great institution it was and hopefully will be again after Brexit. But for an issue that deals strictly with domestic affairs not dealing with EU legislation, you can't do that. All the Gina Millers and all the King's men couldn't do that. Hi, big dog,
1: it's Martin Meehan from Coat Bridge. I'm waiting on a Chinese takeaway, and I hope we Ghislaine chaps the door. <laughs> George, what do you think of Nigel Farage's inference that he may rebadge the Brexit party as reform? Abolish the House of Lords. Is he moving to the left? What are your thoughts on the future of that entity? Best wishes. Alex. Well, it's, it's a kind of new incarnation every other day with <laughs> Nigel Farage now. I mean, I didn't know he'd made this inference about rebadging the Brexit party. I suppose if we Brexit at the end of January, you probably have to call your party something else. But looking at the opinion polls, um, feeling the temperature down on the streets, I'm not sure that the Brexit party will last beyond this.
6: It's very unlikely, uh, even though I do think they'll pick up a handful of seats, only a handful, Hartlepool, where Richard Tice, the most senior member of the party, is standing being the most likely one. The, I've, I've got money on that. Oh, I think you're going to have a good Christmas, mm-hmm. as, and I think many others are going to have a very bad one. But the thing with the Brexit party is, and I speak as the hardest Brexiteer, uh, maybe on earth, even though there's good company, the Brexit party, apart from Brexit, is sort of this weird 18th century radical liberal sort of Foxite party that's not Fox News that's Charles D- James Foxy you and Christopher Hitchens once famously argued over the custody of his legacy um, in the sense that they're a quasi Republican they don't want to abolish the monarchy certainly but they want to abolish everything else that makes the constitutional monarchy what it is uh, it's really put me off them uh, because all that you need to do to fix the broken house of lords and the broken court system is to repeal several acts of Tony Blair's um, and one act of David Cameron's. So you repeal the 99 House of Lords Act. You repeal the 2003 Criminal Justice Act. You repeal the 2005 so-called Constitutional Reform Act. And then you repeal Dave and Nick's uh, uh, Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. I would also go a bit back further to the 50s and repeal the Life Peerages Act. I think that the concept of a life peerage was born to be abused, and my words, since the era of it's been abused. Super abused, yeah. Um,
1: there's no doubt uh, about that last point. This is why you are a Conservative rather than a Brexit partyist, even though. You were so Brexit, you were backing Farage rather than the Conservatives, is that right?
6: Well, most people were in the spring. Uh, when I mean, because Theresa May has as much in common with Conservatives as I do with a dietitian. So that's neither here nor there. But with Boris, we've got to an interesting stage where... Even though the Conservative Manifesto isn't very policy heavy, which from a tactical... Not very heavy at all. Quite. Well, from a tactical point of view, I can see exactly uh, what they're doing, but even though it doesn't have the blood and guts that one might want from the Conservative perspective, but the thing with the Brexit Party is if they're going to be taken seriously beyond Brexit, my advice is to take this Charles James Fox style of 18th-century liberalism and run with it. Because with the Labour Party going on, the rails. There needs to be some opposition, uh, even though, as I said earlier, with a tongue slightly in my cheek, this election, you've got five left-wing parties all competing to convince the, viewers, the, the voters how right-wing they are. So there's a bit of a... It's a bit of a non sequitur there. But, yeah, the Brexit party, they should just own it. If they're going to be this sort of radical type of party, run with it, because at least the Brexit party have very good people in it. Uh, all of the Brexit Party candidates with a few exceptions that I've encountered have been decent people, uh, but the leadership just need to be clear about what they are in a post-Brexit world because Boris has really got this wrapped up.
1: He's been particularly poor as a campaigner, I mean I'm actually mm. genuinely surprised. Boris? yeah, Oh yeah. I, I, I actually thought that Boris Johnson would be 10 times as good a campaigner as he's turned out to be. I mean he's okay in, uh, you know, in a quick one-to-one. Uh, but uh, debating, answering questions in a hostile studio and so on, he's turning out to be really exceedingly poor at that.
6: Yeah, it's it's definitely his weak suit. Where Bo- Boris is weirdly very good, he's a good house of commons man, but he's very bad at these television debates now I don't like to, long before Boris Johnson even had a hope of being Prime Minister I was against these one because of their vulgarity two because they were they're modeled on a Republican system with a strong elected head of state like America or France they're not modeled on a Westminster parliamentary system it's why they'd be out of place for example in India in South Africa in Australia um, but back to but back to Boris uh, the kinds of things that he's come out with it's just as though he's apologetic. In, in these situations where Farage, turning it back to him, when he did his question time special, he is very good. So whilst I disagree with Farage's tactics, and whilst I disagree with this Foxite line of his party are taking, when it comes to the party leaders going in this debating format in a hostile environment, the best ones are Farage and dare I say it, Nicola Sturgeon, who I'm not a fan of at all, but she is very good in these hostile situations. Even though it's it's a bit unfair because when she's speaking to voters in England, whether they're ethnically English or otherwise, what's the point, really? I mean, it's all. And why bit- is
1: she even in the debate?
6: I, I, that's what I don't understand. The DUP stand- aren't in the, the debate. Sinn Féin aren't in you're, you're the You're Standing Welsh only aren't in,
1: in uh, one part of the uh, electorate, and by definition, therefore, nobody else can vote yeah. for you uh, who lives. So 60 million of the 65 million British people (laughs) cannot vote SNP. So why she's on the stage, I I really don't know.
6: It makes no sense to me, for the reasons you mentioned, and also because as a party that's main goal is anti-unionist, You would think they wouldn't want to be on the debate, that they'd want a Scottish-only debate, where they'd be up against whoever Ruth Davidson's successor is. I don't know the person's name.
1: Now, I'm watching your show regularly on YouTube. Great service, thank you. Uh, I know you're occupied by the absurdities of British and US politics, (laughs) but I still would like you to focus on another suicide mission of a social democratic party in Europe. The SPD at the end of the 90s had about 43% of the vote. It's ended up now about 15% and is going to select again a new leadership in December. And once again, it looks strongly like they choose the third way Schroeder, Blair-like candidate named Schultz and his female partner. What is it, a job share? Uh, Schultz is the recent Minister of the Treasury and was under Chancellor Schroeder already in a leading role. Although they could choose a better left-oriented pair of leaders, Borjans and Eskens. The media circus strongly supports Schultz. Watch out for the results in mid-December and scratch your head. Well, thank you very much for that. I I don't know any of these individuals, uh, but I do know the SPD and I do know the stable from which it runs. And uh, until Jeremy Corbyn, all of these uh, social democratic parties were literally going down the tubes. In France they have virtually disappeared. Melenchon is now the representative of the left, I strongly support him. But the uh, sister party of the Labour Party has effectively now disappeared. And that's true across uh, Europe except in uh, Portugal and to some extent in Spain. Spain the party has now gone into coalition with Podemos. And I wish them well. In Portugal, uh, there's a socialist communist coalition uh, and a Trotskyist coalition. So Trotskyists, communists, and socialists what could are possibly in go control. wrong. Well, uh, nothing so far. Actually, so, do they not they, row
6: as much in Portugal well, as they, know, they do well, in this not country? Not as bad.
1: Maybe they don't use Twitter so much. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, actually, that government is uh, doing well, the hmm. Portuguese government, doing better than any uh, other in Europe uh, comparatively. But the German Social Democrats have committed, as you say, political suicide because Blairism is the liquidation of what a Social Democratic Party was supposed to be. And Schroeder and Blair and, uh, and uh, I've forgotten even now their names, the French pretenders who took their party uh, to the graveyard. George, thanks for your wonderful show as a Leave voter. It's gutting the way the decision has been ignored or watered down to such an extent that it's not actually leaving the EU at all. I support Mr. Corbyn's policies, including the nationalisation of the railways. In the event Labour wins and reruns the referendum, how can Labour implement the nationalisation promise, (laughs) as they will be void if we stay in the EU? Labour needs to advise the voters. The nationalisation of railways and utilities is conditional on staying out of the EU. Yours sincerely, Kamran, in Fulham, London. That is the email of the night. Uh, It's something I could have mentioned earlier, but I'd gone on a bit too long. Much of the manifesto cannot be implemented if Britain remains in the European Union, because the very constitution, the Articles of Association since Maastricht are the all goods and services must be open to compulsory competitive tendering, open to all companies, private and public, in all the countries uh, of the EU. Uh, Kenny says, did Sturgeon say the Scots would get no confirmation vote on her negotiated deal with the UK government <laughs> after the negotiations with the UK if the Scots voted to leave the UK? I'm pretty sure she did. Yep. It's a major uh, flaw that we pointed out before in the SNP and uh, on all of this. They have done everything they could to wreck the result of a legitimate referendum in Britain. Why wouldn't people try to wreck any referendum that she was able to uh, wangle out of whatever parliamentary dispensation falls after the election?
6: There's only one conclusion that can be drawn from this. Either the SNP, for all of Sturgeon's debating prowess, either they're tactically and even psychologically very stupid and they're not anticipating that the same arguments they're deploying against Brexit will be deployed by unionists against Scottish nationalism if she gets her referendum. It's either they're stupid about it or they don't actually want to leave the union. And the more I see of the SNP, I see them of what I call a protest vote plus. Now, usually a protest vote is something that you vote for to make a stink, but they don't actually win any elections. And the SNP are going to sweep in Scotland with maybe a few Tory seats. 40, what, the
1: latest poll, 41 SNP, one Labour, the very worst of them, actually, Murray in Edinburgh, mm. uh, 41, one and the rest being Tories. So the Tories would lose a little but not uh, nearly as much as was uh, originally expected with the Liberal Democrats picking up a few seats.
6: Yeah, and so- Joe Swinson holding on to ours. Yeah, by the by the skin, skin of, of, of her, her teeth, teeth. Yeah. yeah. But so they're not a traditional protest vote in the sense that they win elections and they know how to win elections very well. But their biggest, the, 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 the raison d'etre isn't to win elections to the parliament in Westminster, it's to break up the union, sever Scotland from the rest of the union. I'm not sure they really want it and I can- uh, Maybe, yeah. Because if they did want it, they would probably say, look, you Brexit, and then we'll use that to our advantage, saying, look, Scotland has been betrayed. We've been taken out of the European Union by the English and all the other rhetoric that they would deploy. But, I mean, all that it takes is a a, a male version of Gina Miller in a kilt in Edinburgh, who loves the Union, to deploy those same tactics. I'm sure
1: there's a male version of a Gina Miller. I hope in there is. In Pardon in me hopes Edinburgh. there is. Frank asks, is Adam a Rangers man?
6: <laughs> uh, you call me the most controversial man in England. Thank God the Rangers don't play in England. <laughs> <laughs> no, nor do Celtic. <laughs> now, uh, uh,
1: satire, hand-dodges, uh, satire socialist, uh, asked me to ask you earlier. You, you made a particularly vicious, if I may say, uh, attack on uh, John Macdonald, a man yep. I have no uh, time for. Uh, I assumed your vicious attacks aimed at Alastair Campbell, uh, at whose feet (laughs) Macdonald sat uh, quite recently, telling uh, Blair and Campbell that uh, all was forgiven and that Blair was not a a war criminal. But uh, if you want to, it's up to you. Uh, Let Han know, because he's a good man. Let Han know uh, your thoughts on that, on the Macdonald Oh,
6: yeah. So, there's many people in the Labour Party who had relations with... I'm not just talking about Irish Republican politics. I'm talking the IRA. And before I go on, one can support Palestine without supporting Hamas. One can support Israel without supporting Netanyahu and those to the right of him. One can support Irish Republicanism without supporting the IRA. One can support Irish Unionism without supporting the UDA. So, now that we've got the difference between extremes and. Moderation out of the way. Let me get to the point. Macdonald isn't so unique in terms of the things he said and the relations he had vis a vis anyone else. They're not relations, certainly, that I have ever had or would want to have, but those are his, and he's not alone. And frankly, Margaret Thatcher, well, he was in the the IRA Margaret Thatcher was capitulating to them, in my view, and every prime minister since has largely done the same. And now they're saying the peace might not even hold because of something as ridiculous as the EU, which shows you that a more honest approach for peace should have been made rather than one that, frankly, was dishonest to both sides. The problem that specifically I have with MacDonald is that there's something so nasty about him that whilst he gave this mealy mouth apology for his previous associations, it would almost be better if he didn't give one, because the man stinks of insincerity, which is derived from his nastiness. You can see that everything he says is through gritted teeth. And the personality, I think, rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And that's almost a microcosm of, I think, what a lot of people, not just because of Brexit, but even beyond, have with this Labour Party. It's not so much the positions they hold, but the way in which they hold them. It's not unique to the Labour Party. I remember two controversial uh, Tories. One Enoch Powell, one Ted Heath. One controversial in his life, one perhaps more controversial in death. And uh, when when Heath sacked Powell, he said it wasn't because of the content of the speech, which actually supported a piece of conservative legislation that was brought in in in, uh, 1971. It was because of the tone. And Powell, who liked music, that Heath, who was something of a musical genius in his own way, even though his, my politics are very different, he said, it's funny that a musician should say tone. Now, I started off as a musician, uh, much like Ted Heath, and there's something about McDonald's tone that I really don't like. I'm not asking, and I don't, it, that, is that scientific? No, but it's a feeling, and I think it's one that I, others well, share. Well, uh,
1: uh, I am uh, the very last man uh, to defend John McDonnell except on his stand uh, on Ireland, uh, one which I have shared uh, all my life Uh, and uh, share now. Uh, If I were to condemn him, it would be for the fake apology uh, that he uh, offered, described himself as part of the problem. Uh, Well I'm not a part of the problem and I resile from none of my actions or words. Uh, on Ireland. I support Irish reunification and independence with all of my heart. Uh, But I do believe that John MacDonald is uh, completely insincere. I think he's a fake, a phony, and I think he has been, when the history comes to be written, and I'm talking about roughly January of next year, (laughs) uh, when uh, people right from the center of events will have been sacked and now will emerge to write their memoirs, their diaries, and so on. I think you'll be shocked at the uh, reputation, reputational damage that John McDonnell will suffer very, very quickly mm. after an expected Labour defeat uh, on January the 12th. Of course, I'm hoping there will be no Labour defeat on January the 12th, but I'm not going to lie to you. I expect one. Now, Mike. Uh, is in south carolina wants to talk about bloomberg mike welcome hey good day george good uh, day to good you to my friend you now, i got one
4: thing that i want to tell you before i go to bloomberg and that's regarding your your uh privatization of your health care system there i have lived under the uh, thumb of United Healthcare and and Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and all of these corporations for my entire life. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you now: if you allow this creeping privatization to go into the uh, the UK, you will rue this day. I promise you. But Bravo! You, you
1: Bravo, have, Mike. You Bravo. cannot
4: have. You can, yeah, you can't have a for-profit healthcare system uh, and expect it to deliver healthcare because it's just the opposite. They make money off of sickness, and that's what will happen. But. Let's go to Bloomberg. Beautifully
1: uh, expressed. Well done.
4: About, yeah, let's go to Bloomberg and, and talk uh or possible entry into the uh, the race here, uh, as well as Hillary Clinton. I mean, she talks about going in, but she's lost all of her credibility uh, after she uh, smeared uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, on on you know she's a military person and, and she, and she said that
1: uh, Tulsi Gabbard was uh, a Russian
4: is a. As a uh, a uh, supporter of our president here, yep. than Trump. Yeah, uh, but 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 here's the thing, Trump, uh, Bloomberg is coming in to replace a flailing. Uh, Joe Biden, because he's gone down. There's no question about that. Yeah. And you have all these people running in the selection here to split up the vote. But if you look at the actual percentages of people that support uh, a, a progressive candidate, if you consider that progressive candidate to be Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, and the rest of them, they far outweigh the uh, conservative side of the Democratic Party. But but here's what can happen, and I, I don't know if you remember the 2016 election, but they Only stole am well. Oh yes, yes. They they stole the election from Bernie Sanders in sure. twenty sixteen, and they did it by way of uh, super delegates. Yeah, and and they counted them in every primary, which which you know always gave Hillary Clinton the lead, although she didn't have one. It was like putting a finger on the scale. Now. Mm-hmm. This year, this election is going to be a little bit different because the Democratic Party was under you know, such scrutiny and stuff that they decided not to use the, the superdelegates in the first ballot.
1: Until the, until so the second off, ballot, yes.
4: That's exactly right. So that's why they the put deal. up so
1: many candidates to more exactly sure right. a second ballot.
4: That's right, mm. because at that time, the, the, Democratic, the establishment Democratic Party uh, can pull away from the progressive side of the Democratic Party that has all the support, and, and that's what—that's why they're in there, but, you know. But you know, you know, uh, uh, Bloomberg doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of actually getting through this election and winning it. Okay, not a goal.
1: Cool. Uh,
9: I'm hearing that. Yeah, and um, that affected me. Yeah, all my childhood, and most of my adult life. Um, but what I've come to realize is that Labour are doing absolutely nothing for us. They've had control of our local councils around here in the northeast for years, as you, know, as you know, they were in power for X amount of years when, um, well, it, it, it's just me humble opinion, but I mean, um, John Smith, um, I believed every word that man used to say and, and, and it sounded like he was going to make the world a better place but he died suddenly and then Blair was in power and then we would just at war that for years. Nothing changed. We were promised lords, We had um, lots of white elephants built around and things like that. Um, I'm a true believing democracy. I'm in the Labour heartland. I'm 100% voted to leave the EU because I understand it for their technocratic tyranny that it is. And well, I think that's a
1: very, very powerful call, James. So there was nothing humble uh, about your uh, opinion. Uh, it is echoed everywhere where Labour has been in permanent power, uh, where councils and councillors have been corrupted by, by overwhelming power by the one party state that exists locally in so many places. The seat for life mentality of so many labor MPs who never imagined that their people would have anyone else that they could vote for as soon as uh, the possibility came in the Brexit referendum of people expressing a clear rejection of the status quo. They took it. Adam.
6: Uh, Well, again, it's it's so interesting because at this very time of night last week, we had another caller from a Labour constituency speaking a lot of sense, and we've just heard a lot of sense because. The people in Labour, in Nor- I called the North London Mafia not because, the, well, it's an insult to organised crime because mafia implies organisation. <laughs> and it was Disraeli who called the Conservative Party of the 1840s an organised hypocrisy. I suppose you could call the Labour Party of today a disorganised hypocrisy but throughout the midlands and the north and south wales and even other parts of britain there is this feeling of betrayal and it didn't happen overnight brexit wasn't the camel brexit was the straw that broke the camel's back and the the the, heave, the heaving up of the straw the gathering of this straw really began as the caller said when john smith died in 94 and tony blair began his project brexit was a wake up call for all of the parties. 40s. Theresa May didn't hear it, Boris Johnson clearly has. Jeremy Corbyn weirdly used to be much stronger of a Brexiteer than Boris Johnson. When Boris Johnson wasn't particularly interested in Europe, uh, Corbyn, like yourself, was voting against the hor- horrible Maastricht Treaty uh, in 1992, while John Major was the hypocrite of the day who won by the skin of his teeth. But. Now you've got a situation where Corbyn is leading a pro-Remain party that doesn't have the decency to call themselves well, that. Well, some
1: of them do. Some of them are carrying banners saying, vote me, I'm Remain. Uh, yeah, and, in, uh, at
6: an individual level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. then I mean, there's Emily Thornbury who went parading Corporal, around uh, Brighton. Corporal
1: Paul Mason, there was Emily Thornbury in her, uh, uh, her EU nightdress on the, on, the, on the front. And <laughs> I want to take, uh, we've got to clear the decks for a, for a legend, as you know. The legend that is Norma in Bristol. Ah, we've lost her. Let's go to Adil in Oregon. Adil, welcome.
0: Hi, thank you, thank you, George. It's really very a pleasure welcome. Very to you. welcome, um, sir. Go ahead. I, I really, this is mi- mainly a question, but it's uh, I guess maybe the it's a straw man proposition that I hope you can uh, you know talk about. Okay. You know, I wanted to ask you, what do you think about like? I'm very confused about the state of u s politics right now i feel I feel like the the Democrats there's a wing of the Democrats that are falling maybe too far left because the you know there are propositions that they're making on their platforms that i don't know if they can handle all at once a green new deal um, i don't know they're they're projecting significant increases in average wages and at the same time free education and at the same time um uh, the healthcare issue, which I, for me, uh, well, actually that and, and climate change. But but how you know how do you balance all of that at the same time, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, obviously the, the there's a part of the U.S. that you know has to do with military spending and its hegemony, and I don't you know I I, I don't know how you you I know you've uh, you know criticized the U.S. a lot of times and some of its uh, its militaristic uh, you know um, uh, endeavors around the world, and I I actually do admit that that's the case in many cases but um but at the same time i'm wary of a lack of complete you know hegemony Uh, i mean i i i'm I'm asking what is the appropriate threshold because i look at the world today i don't see a lot of inspiring powerful actors and to me the u.s is the most forthright uh, capable power that can keep a lot of countries in check in line into, you know, into this, into a, a, a bigger project of, of universal uh, democracy, which I, I happen to believe in. I wanted to
1: Yeah, Adel, only because of the hour, I need to uh, bring your call uh, to a close. Uh, I'm not sure, if you'll forgive me, whether to laugh or cry at your idea that the U.S. as a, as a universal policeman uh, has played any kind of uh, benign role anywhere least of all for democracy is the truth of the matter is uh, the United States has destroyed democracy in place after place theater after theater has drowned whole populations in blood has scarcely stopped being at war uh, almost since its inception but certainly since the end of the Second World War it has overthrown elected governments it has murdered uh, elected presidents. It has uh, subverted uh, the political process in many, many countries. And it is currently engaged in just a few steps short of military hostilities against uh, both China and Russia, precisely because it refuses to cede what you yourself call hegemony. So we are profoundly on different. Uh, pages you and I and I just wish we had more time uh, to discuss. it. I'm sorry I can't let you back in uh, But uh, do call next week and we can continue it. I need to hear from the legend. That is Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma
10: Hello, George. I'm the only woman you know call
1: it. Yeah, and it's not good. It's not good I'll make a particular effort next week to call for more women callers, but That's you are the right. only legend also
10: <laughs> oh, I didn't. So go on. Well, um, it's difficult because you had a caller called Russell from Wales yeah. who um, called supporting Labour and you had another one I wrote it down, Chris from Redcar yeah. who might now vote Tory a Labour bloke. Yeah. Now why, I um you talked about Labour Party culture and in the Labour Party manifesto for the many, I think it really is in working class interest to vote Labour. I did vote Brexit, I don't like the Labour Party policy, but I've now chosen to stick with them because the, you know, the alternative is not for me, you know?
1: Well, I could never vote Tory, as I said, I mean, even if you put me on a, in a firing squad, I could never uh, vote Tory. Uh, but uh, you'd have to put me in front of a firing squad to get me to vote for, uh, well, any one of uh, 120 mm. Labour MPs if I lived in their mm. area.
10: Well, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I would, would have to vote
1: a... for in Derby? You wouldn't vote Labour in Derby North, would you?
10: i vote for Chris Williamson. No, oh, he's right. not. He's, he's so, independent. I so, wouldn't yeah, vote for no, Margaret Hodge.
1: No, and you would vote for Chris Williamson. So we've already agreed the principle uh, that yeah. uh, it's not vote Labour everywhere. Can't be. Uh, no, I know. If but Tony if Blair he... came back as a candidate, you wouldn't <laughs> advocate voting for him. Um, yeah. and, and he could. He's still uh, in the Labour Party. He said he might make a comeback. Um, so it's about <laughs> who and where, isn't it?
10: I know, but you know, if, yeah, it is about who and where. I agree, but it's a bit like a marriage because everything's not perfect, but. He wouldn't want a divorce, would you? No, it's that's very right. difficult.
1: No, but that's right. But we're not talking about a husband no. or errant, no.
10: uh,
1: errant wife or errant husband. We're talking no. about uh, discovering that your MP is a murderer. We're, to- we're talking about discovering that your MP supports arming Saudi Arabia to murder Yemeni children. That's a bit different from continuing in a marriage uh, where your uh, your husband's... Habits annoy you, isn't it? Yeah, I know, but we're
10: not talking about Mr Blair now, because he's not no, putting not, up No, No, neither am everything. I talking
1: about him. I'm talking about today's MPs. 120 of them broke the Labour three-line whip to stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia with which to kill children in Yemen. Now, that, that same 120 are running for election. Mm, Therefore, yep. they're accomplices to murder
10: well, yeah, I know, but the thing is, I just think that the manifesto that the Labour Party oh, has got yeah, it's great. Is, is okay. No, and,
1: um, I'd go further. I'd take it much further, and I would, would prioritize some things uh, that they have not. The, the waspy women, for example, should have been yeah. in, the, in the manifesto. I'd spend a bit less on students, yep. I must tell you, even though I'm uh, leading a, an open university here. Uh, I'd spend more on on pensioners uh, and so on but by and large. It's a great. It's a great manifesto Norma The problem is I'm being asked to vote for individual candidates Who I know? from bitter past experience are in blood Literally or metaphorically. That's the problem.
10: But there may be Tories who voted exactly the same. No, yeah,
1: but I would never vote Tories, so that doesn't count no, no, for me. No. That no. doesn't count for me. No. Anyway, Norma... It's
10: difficult. It, it's very difficult. Yeah,
1: yeah. Everyone must but make should, up, I have uh, decided to must vote Labour. Up their mind. OK, you've decided to vote Labour. I'm voting for me, uh, but that's another <laughs> uh, matter. Thanks very much indeed for that call. Uh, the poll, uh, second poll has closed. Uh, links is the ad campaign for Christmas that Prince Andrew should uh, front up. Now, that's the obvious one because he says he doesn't sweat and therefore it couldn't have been him, Your Honor. Uh, So, a third of you think he should advertise links. 61% of you think he should advertise Pizza Express. Pizza Express were on the rack, you know, before all this happened. Uh, There was talk of them going into administration. I'm not sure if this is good publicity, Adam, or bad publicity. There's no
6: such thing as bad publicity. Perhaps
1: not. Perhaps it will help. Let's look at the next uh, annual results of Pizza Express. Tyrac, only 5%, but then only old fogies, young fogies <laughs> like Adam <laughs> wear ties. Uh, any longer.
6: Only when I'm in London, not when I'm at Mr. Epstein's house in Florida.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not when you're out ratting in the countryside with your aristocratic friends. Well, look, it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time, same place, for the mother of all talk shows. Good night.